the network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Nation is brought to you by Sure. Because every voice matters. Hello, welcome to XR Star, your monthly podcast where we talk all things extended reality and metaverse. I'm your host, futurist Amelia Kalman. Before we get started, I just want to wish all the women out there a happy International Women's Day as well as Women's History Month. I've been in tech 10 years now, and it's been amazing to watch women in XR and AV and now the metaverse rise up and be seen and heard and support one another. And I feel really lucky to know so many incredible women in this space. Let's keep showing up for each other and remember that our actions and contributions do make a difference now and to the generations coming up. For today's episode, I am thrilled to welcome a woman who is a personal inspiration. Many of you probably already know her name, but if you don't, you should. She's been named the godmother of virtual reality by The Guardian and Engadget. She's known internationally as a pioneer of immersive journalism, has recently won the coveted Peabody Award, has been named Wall Street Journal's Innovator of the Year, and is the founding director of Narrative and Emerging Media at Arizona State University, as well as the founder of Emblematic Group. Dr. Nani Della Pena creates stories that you remember with your entire body, not just your mind. Her innovative, high-impact, immersive journalism puts us in the middle of something we might normally see on the news, giving us presence and making you a participant rather than just a passive viewer. Tackling some of the most vital issues of our time, from climate change, the refugee crisis, and hunger, to police brutality, prison reform, abortion, and domestic violence. Her work doesn't just tell stories, it allows us to live them. In a huge step forward to making this technology more accessible and available, Emblematic Group have just launched the beta at try.reach.love. It's the first web platform for creating, remixing, and sharing volumetric VR. It allows anyone to make immersive volumetric VR from their own home using real people and places. A simple drag and drop interface lets users place themselves into high-res 3D environments and then share the results via a simple web link. To share with us more about her fascinating career, reach VR and more, I am thrilled to welcome the one and only Nani. Welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Um, you know, it's so wonderful to get to meet you in person last fall. Um, I know we share the delight in the way that immersive technologies really uh, can profoundly move and delight um, and engage. And uh, I think we're on this journey together. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It really means a lot to me that you're here today. It's a thrill. So to begin, can you share with us a bit about your story and how you got started in this industry? To be honest, I actually really got interested in uh, virtual reality um, uh, when Howard Rheingold wrote his book, Virtual Reality, when I read that book. And then I was thinking, gosh, my whole goals in journalism is, uh, you know, generally is to try to make people feel like they have the view from the ground. 
there was a World War II reporter, Martha Gellhorn, and she would call it The View from the Ground. And I had done that when I was a correspondent for Newsweek magazine back when we had a print edition. And I've written for the New York Times and LA Times, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I'd moved into documentary, I'd worked on TV shows, on staff, on fictional TV shows, but nothing really gave me that sense, that sense that I was letting my audience have the view from the ground. And um, once I, I put on a headset in Barcelona in the lab of Mel Slater and Maria Sanchez Vives, um, and I experienced what it was like to be on scene in the middle of a story, I was like, oh my God, I can never have my audience out there. They've got to be in here with me. And that's really where it started, uh, I would say, back in 2010. Wow. Well, I built a virtual Guantanamo Bay prison in Second Life in 2007. But that was a 2D screen interface, right? And it was very powerful. I mean, it was a really interesting project. We had so many students in universities and people come to a place that otherwise was so off limits, right? The real place was off limits. But then cut to a few years later when Mel and Mavi invited me to their lab, um, uh, along with Peggy, artist Peggy Weil, who worked on the Gitmo project with me. Um, uh, man, I, I put on that first headset and really walked around and said, oof, this is the future. Just curious, when you, the first time you tried VR, what was the experience that you tried? Were you walking a plank or killing zombies or what was it? No, on contrary, it's a very interesting project. So everybody knows about the bystander effect, um, or they think they know about the bystander effect. And it comes from a New York Times report on how a young woman, Kitty Genovese, was being murdered and screaming for help and that everybody else thought somebody else would come and help her. And the bystanders, the more there were, that nobody would get involved. Well, Mel and Mavi, along with another researcher uh, in the UK, were interrogating that assumption. And you can't really put people on scene, um, you know, when a real, uh, 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 you know, scenario like that is occurring. But what they built is a virtual one where you walk into a, a bar and there's a guy, um, uh, you know, wearing one soccer football jersey uh, and the other guy walks into the bar wearing a different soccer football jersey and the guy who's been drinking at the bar goes and attacks him. Right. And so what do you do, right? How do you, that's a bystander, right? And for me, I remember it was really, you know, back with the wide five and the thick cable. I remember trying to push forward, to pull forward to get into the scene and the cable pulling on me. And I remember just being profoundly affected by what I was experiencing. Um, and interestingly, that work, including utilizing, um, CCTV footage um, from uh, closing time or, or, you know, caught at, caught at pubs, not just closing time, but caught in pubs in, in the UK, very much corroborated their findings, which is basically the more people they are that are there, the more likely someone is going to try to intervene. And in fact, after they um, produced that piece and, and, and uh, published their study, the New York Times came out and said that, in fact, they had misrepresented the facts in the Kitty Genovese case and that um, many people had tried to help and um, or multiple people had tried to help and that um, uh, the way they reported it was erroneous. So essentially, the bystander effect is a fiction. And this piece is, uh, was a fundamental reason for me to understand uh, uh, the nonsense around it. And uh, it was interesting that with VR that would kind of try to glean the truth of what, what really happened. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. That is, that is better than my walk the plank story for sure. <laughs> um, what surprised you the most working in this medium 
I think to be fair, the real surprise to me has been the the pushback and the resistance. Um, you know, we saw that in the music industry. We saw that in journalism. They did not want to adopt the web, you know, and we're kind of at that funny point now where there's a lot of people saying, oh, you know, nobody's ever going to want to do this. Nobody's ever going to want to put on a headset. Well, you know, agreed. The headsets are a little bit heavy and cumbersome right now, but those headsets are going to come. So how are we going to design the content? What are we going to deliver to people? It's going to explode. Um, and particularly now we've got AI to help us do models and environments and some of the real heavy lifting and expensive lifting that can prevent a lot of people from doing content. Um, I think that we are just uh, on the cusp of, uh, of, you know, really this exploding. Um, and if you've actually done a, a well-made immersive experience, you recognize that this is going to um, be part of the vernacular in the near future. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's amazing right now. We're starting to see this convergence of all these technologies coming together. You know, we've been talking about AI and XR and blockchain, and now, you know, their interplay is really making the foundation of this future that we're that we're moving into. And I think with generative AI, that's going to be kind of the bridge that gets your average regular person into you know, 3D immersive metaverse spaces without maybe even realizing that that's what they're participating in. You know, I think it's, it's going to be quite powerful. One of the things we've just, as part of our beta that we released uh, the feature is you, when you design your scene in Reach, whatever you make in Reach, this button-based system that just lets you make immersive content um, in general. I mean, you can look at it on a computer or a phone or a headset. Um, but one of the features we have now is you can export as a GLB or GLTF. And then whatever you make, you can now bring into a metaverse space like um, spatial.io or your Nowhere or Mozilla Hubs. All that means that you can not only have your own metaverse world that you've designed, but you can it's got a certain interoperability that you can take it with you, that you can be in different spaces and not have to be, you know, uh, be, be, you know, uh, dictated to, you know, where you want to hang out or, you know, who controls that. Um, so that's really fun that uh, we've been able to offer that, uh, you know, literally we just launched that this last two weeks. That is so cool. Yeah. And actually that was one of my questions. I wanted to know more about reach.love and then try.reach.love is the beta that I literally got the email about an hour ago. So I'm so excited to give that a go. Um, for anybody who doesn't know what we're talking about. Can you just give them your introduction and, and what it is and what it does? Sure. So um, as somebody who, uh, you know, built my first full walk around experience in 2010, um, uh, and then, you know, I had the first virtual reality piece at Sundance and Tribeca and World Economic Forum. And, you know, I've been building content in the game engines for a long time. And, um, it's really been hard to make. And I know how expensive it is. I know how hard it is. I had to learn how to be a C-sharp coder. I was never a great Unity programmer, but I could at least struggle through some stuff. But that's the point. Why do we need to struggle? And then why, when we make our content, do we have to have a 2D video to show a 3D experience? All that drove me crazy. And so back starting in 2016, I started designing a button-based web XR system 
um, that meant that anybody could start to make simple stories. It doesn't have game engine physics, but you can absolutely do all kinds of work for it. I mean, everything from previs for uh, film to uh, journalism to educational pieces, um, advertising, uh, real estate. I mean, really, there's a lot of uh, use cases. Architecture, there's so many use cases for content creators and just fun storytelling. And again, like I said, um, now you can make spaces that uh, you can bring into different metaverses. Um, uh, so the basic premise is you can uh, have a 3D environment, you can bring in 3D objects. We have uh, Sketchfab's library um, API. So uh, you can search Sketchfab for objects and bring them straight into your reach system. Um, and uh, you can add all kinds of animations and sound and video and photographs and any way that you need to to build something in an immersive 3D way. Um, and then it publishes as a URL. So what does that mean? That means you can embed it in your own websites. You can share it across anything. It can be looked at on a phone um, and you can use your phone literally screen tapping forward and back, um, top and bottom in order to move through space. So this is a way to like start making immersive content um, uh, easy to use, um, accessible and shareable uh, in a, you know, in a, in a way that the distribution systems before have been wall gardens and, and, uh, we haven't been able to, to readily and easily make and share content. So to me, that's such an amazing step forward, that idea about alleviating the friction of getting into this space and making it accessible and inclusive to, to anyone. So I love that you're doing that. And I, I really appreciate it too for, for this industry. And I wanted to ask you about the filming process. So last episode, I talked to Sony about virtual production, and I was wondering how filming has changed over the years for you, and if there's been any developments that you're quite looking forward to when it comes to making this production. Yeah, so um, it's really exciting at my, you know, I'm based in downtown Los Angeles, uh, but we're a satellite campus for Arizona State University. And we have a huge planar LED wall for doing virtual production. Now, how long have I been working in game engine technologies and immersive technologies and the idea of how do you get um, a camera to um, uh, you know, move through space, the viewer moving through space? And with virtual production, we're now beginning to marry um, not just these layers of game engine technologies, which is super exciting, but also we start to think about um, you know, creating uh, scanned objects and bringing those in. So now we're marrying LIDAR and photogrammetry and all the skills that were crucial for uh, creating an AR and VR are now becoming crucial for creating a virtual production. So it's a super exciting moment where we're marrying um, what we know in the uh, three-dimensional world and bringing it in to both the two-dimensional and the three-dimensional. And what's really cool is that like, once you've made something for virtual production, you can use a lot of those assets and bring them out into VR and AR. So um, that means there's, you know, when we talk about extended reality, now we have to include virtual production in the umbrella, under the umbrella. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's such an opportunity there, that idea of the library. So you're not recreating, you know, the Eiffel Tower or the streets of Manhattan every time you're building something new. There's opportunities there for new revenue streams like licensing and that kind of thing. 
Well, and, and also, um, uh, you know, one of the things I'm very interested in pursuing is this idea of some open source assets that we can share among productions in that, you know, you, you don't have to fly the entire crew down to Mexico City or assemble all this stuff um, that uh, can help think about a climate change reduction, right? A carb It's a carbon reduction if we can use the same digital assets that somebody scanned and created, um, you know, you know, how many films are going to be set in, you know, 1930s, you know, whatever, Manhattan now, well, now, you know, if we're going to be looking at, you know, 2000, 2010 scanned recreations of um, our current locations. Um, couldn't they be part of a library that can be accessed here, you know, here with, and therefore we don't have to, you know, do the kind of production um, um, you know, people, flights, hotels, cars, all of that stuff, which really, uh, uh, you know, is a carbon, um, uh, you know, suck, Absolutely. you know, or, or emitter, not suck. I wish it were a suck, but yeah. And so, so like, I think that, um, it's a very interesting moment where we can also think about how we as creators can, um, do something to fight, uh, the problems that we're having with climate change. Yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking quite a lot about that. I did a TED talk recently about the environmental impact of the metaverse and looking at gaming and and that impact. And then also how infrastructure is going to impact how, um, how we store data, how we use data, because I think there is an incredible risk here that, you know, when we go from the 2D data to 3D data and producing that much more data, you know, what happens? Does it all just get stored? Do we put some kind of regulations around it, around limits um, or size or these kind of things? So there's so many questions kind of coming up. And, and kind of in that line, I wanted to ask you about things like authentic authentication in this area, things like, you know, deep fakes. We've seen what happened just this week um, with um, the podcaster. Oh, Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan, right? And um, and just how readily available this technology is and stuff. So what are your thoughts when it comes to any kind of regulation we could put in place or what needs to happen to make sure that we don't live in a world where we can't trust anything that we see or hear? You always have to have uh, some sort of critical thinking. I just gave you that whole story about the bystander effect, and the New York Times was a very trusted newspaper, and they got it wrong. So we know that that you know truth is a little bit of a soft space, no matter what. However, however, when you're talking about uh, really important um, digital captures of, and um, you want to authenticate them, um, there's some systems now on you know, how we can take that imagery and put it on the blockchain. Um, uh, working with an amazing guy named Jonathan Doten, who's uh, at Starling Labs at Stanford and USC. And for example, one of the things he did is he took an interview from the Shoah Foundation, which is of a Holocaust survivor, put it on the blockchain so that if anybody ever makes a deep fake of that individual, the original material, the source material will be on the blockchain so that it can be checked for authenticity. Now, how do we take that same kind of approach 
and use it for photogrammetry and LIDAR and metaverse practices and digital you know, content management and rights. Um, these are really crucial questions. And Jonathan and I have our being together. We're actually going to be hosting a conference, uh, it looks like at the end of March with Creative Commons to begin to explore um, uh, you know, this very complicated problem. Um, uh, if you look at Rolling Stone did a, an amazing piece about uh, a, a war crime, um, a photo from the Bosnia-Serbia um, uh, conflict, and they tracked this guy down through the photos, but every photo was put up on the blockchain so that you could go and look at it. Where did it come from? Look if it was cropped. Look at its, um, uh, 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 you know, if you if there has been any Photoshop changes, etc. And I think that kind of ability to uh, trace the original sources of material are going to really help, um, with the caveat that if uh, we have a witness who uh, needs to be protected. Um, we want to make sure they're, they can keep their identity secret while still having the authenticity of their information on the blockchain. And my understanding is now camera companies are starting to put chips into the camera. So when you take a picture, it automatically ends up on the blockchain so that it'll be, you know, able to be, uh, you know, uh, determine where it came from, um, from the start. Now, um, that of course has its own privacy implications, but but these are really important questions to be tackling rather than just saying, okay, well, deep fakes, we're gonna have to live with them, we'll never know the truth. No, we have to start saying that, you know, every interview with say a president of the United States has to be on the blockchain so that we know they didn't order a nuclear war. Yeah. No, and that's such a great use case for blockchain. You know, we tend to kind of focus on the things like the NFTs and the crypto, and you know, whereas this is actually solving a very vital problem that we have. So really interested to hear about that. And also, I didn't know that about the chips and the cameras. I'm going to have to look into that. That's um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, right. Super interesting. We're at a very super interesting moment of, you know, yeah, transition with that one. Kind of along these lines, I mentioned some of the important issues that you tackle in your work, and they're pretty serious, heavy issues. And wonder if you could share a bit about how you go about developing these projects and the processes you have in place and any advice you have about how you ensure that the media and the final product maintains the integrity and respect these big topics demand. So one of the most uh, important things to do is make sure that uh, the individuals, the subjects of the project are um, uh, properly informed, that um, you've um, really carefully checked um, the information they're providing um, and giving them uh, the support um, that they might want as you make the project. For example, when I did a piece on uh, domestic violence on these two sisters who tried unsuccessfully to rescue a third sister from a fatal attack by an ex-boyfriend, um, it's a pretty brutal piece. Um, and the sisters were very traumatized, but they really wanted this story out there. Um, they really wanted people to start doing something about domestic violence, particularly around guns. Similarly, when I did a piece uh, that uses the audio recorded by uh, Daniel Pierce, who's attacked by his family and thrown out of his home for being gay, uh, for being a member of the LGBTQ community, which basically has the highest level of homelessness 
um, the youth uh, the youth population is extraordinarily uh, vulnerable because people throw them their families throw them out for being who they are right and they they end up on the streets so that piece it's pretty intense and again you know you we did a mocap to recreate the moment when literally his stepmother hits him and his family attacks him his dad too and um uh daniel really helped direct that whole piece so you know the mocap etc he wasn't he didn't ever experience the final piece he didn't want to nor did the sisters but but they were very much participants in making sure that um they were treated treated fairly justly and with um the appropriate amount of care yeah and do these pieces, do they come with things like trigger warnings? Is there any regulation around that that I know, um, you know, sometimes when you listen to podcasts, they have to say, you know, don't listen to this if, you know, or do you, do you is that in, in place for VR? Well, definitely. You can just have a screen with an uh, announcement up, and indeed we do. But um, one thing I want to say is that um, if you go to the Society of Professional Journalists and you look at their page, they have a code of ethics. And um, no one line is meant to be taken on its own. It's not fixed in stone. Things shift and change. But I think journalists have really um, um, gone through a big sea change in thinking about how information is reported. I mean, you know, more recently discovering, gee, there's a lot of falsification in police reports, um, things that we took as for granted, you know, or journalism industry did. Uh, uh, as, as being truth, right, previously. And I think that those lists of standards are really excellent for any profession um, and provide guidelines on how you would make any kind of content. Um, and um, uh, I, it's one of the first things I teach my students. No, it's really, really important. Because especially with these technologies when you're completely immersed we know how powerful they are and how they can evoke very emotional experiences um one thing that i often think about is we don't have any kind of long-term studies per se um when it comes to how it actually engages and its potential to rewire the brain um in these kind of ways do you have any kind of thoughts around that do you think that i mean we know that it can create long-term change within people um and and i guess i guess my question is how do we make sure that we use that power for good i laugh i want to joke right i joke and talk about like the rosetta stone which we think of as this amazing document because it helped us translate all these languages blah 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 or not document artifact right this, this you know a historical uh piece right revered in a in the british museum in london and you know always people staring at it well if you do any research you find out it was a tax collection document by basically you know uh, uh dictators right so um any technology is going to be utilized for its best and its worst right um uh that doesn't mean that we can't try to approach what we make with um, as much sensitivity and depth and uh, framings like the Society of Professional Journalists uh, Code of Ethics. Um, but um, I also truly believe, and it's why I've been working so long and hard in this field, that um, these immersive experiences change people. They really make them feel the stories more viscerally. And we've done studies, for example, 
I worked on a piece on um, uh, how young uh, women and uh, frankly, all women are treated when they go into healthcare clinics like Planned Parenthood and there's protesters outside and the kind of horrible vitriol that gets screamed at them, right? And we studied that on, in multiple different ways. We took it to a very conservative area in the South and the US. And um, it was interesting because it wasn't about um, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, but everybody agreed that, you, that you know, women shouldn't be screamed at that way and protesters should not be allowed to do that. And similarly, it went into a campus, a college campus, and you know, all these uh, young men were like, gee, I didn't realize what women had to put up with. So um, it really had a profound effect on people who, you know, been hearing the same, seeing it on TV, seeing the protesters, hearing about the protesters, but to actually be yelled at that way, which is what happened. You have to walk the line as people are screaming at you while you try to get inside the clinic. Um, and it's all real audio. Every piece of audio being screamed at people comes from a real scene. Uh, there is um, uh, a difference in the way that people um, uh, feel about these scenarios. And I think that that has really held true on throughout my work of, you know, like I said, the climate change piece, you're in the back of a um, photogrammetry and, and, and volumetric video capture of a NASA scientist in the back of his plane dropping a thermometer down through a tube next to the toilet. And you know what? that you know you could drop that tube, which contains a thermometer to measure the ocean uh, temperature. And it's really clear they're not making this up in a cubbyhole. You could be in the back of that plane. And by understanding that, it demystifies the science and offers an accessibility that I think is unique to the medium. A unique to, to all media, really. Absolutely. And you've covered so many topics so far in your career. Do you have sort of some anything on your bucket list that you haven't professionally covered yet that you still would like to to cover or achieve you know funny enough I there are a couple things that are really I want to get done um one I've been very slowly working on trying to rethink how we would make the passion of Joan of Arc the call theater dryer passion of Joan of Arc in VR because there was that close-up that changed film but now if I have you standing next to Joan of Arc when her hair is being cut off and the hair is falling at your feet, that is what VR can do, right? And so I, I'm interested in using that as a framework for remaking that piece. And the other thing that I'm really so like, you know, want to do. So in LA, we had something called the, you know, Chicano movement, which was the, the Mexican Americans who, um, uh, were trying to get equal rights. I'll just leave it at that in a very simple way. And they very much felt like they were fighting the man. And um, they adopted uh, Cinco de Mayo because that was when a small band of Mexicans overthrew a huge army of the French in a surprise battle on on uh, you know May fifth. And after they adopted that, it became somehow a party that everybody now knows Cinco de Mayo with chips and, you know, margaritas and beer and da, da, da. And I sort of think that I want to go back to that idea of it's actually a, you know, a, 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 the rebel's holiday. And uh, I, there's something fun about that concept of like, you know, celebrating the Chicano movement and also, um, you know, how do we, how do we 
make people understand that they're partying with the rebels. So I, I don't know. I, I, it's just an idea at this point, but I'm going to get back to it. Yeah, I love that idea about going back to historical moments that we obviously weren't there for, but making somebody understand the origin stories of how we got to where we are today, I think is quite impactful. I think about things like the Stonewall Rebellion. That would be amazing to see what that was like. You know, um, those are great projects. I really, really um, would be interested to try those. I also wanted to ask you a bit about your working at Arizona University and what you're doing there. So at Arizona State University, it's um, been amazing to see what they're doing. They've made a commitment to immersive that I don't think any other university has, of hiring literally like 18 new XR professors and different on different uh, uh, capacities. Um, I actually have a posting going out right now on uh, for a professor in XR. So uh, if you're listening and you're interested in applying, um, uh, find me and I will uh, get you the link to the job application. Um, but what that means is that um, we're really uh, trying to uh, push where this is all going and um, democratize um, the medium in a way that, um, uh, you know, allows us to shift the demographic of who's working, thinking, creating in this space. Um, my program, the Narrative and Emerging Media Program, uh, it's a graduate degree, but um, uh, so, and it's very inexpensive master's. It's a fraction of what you pay for most universities in the United States. Um, and it, um, and really, frankly, the UK now too, um, uh, and, uh, it's a little over a year program. You can get out in a year if you, if you really push, um, that lets you, uh, come out understanding how to be a director producer in narrative, narrative and emerging media, including virtual production. Um, but we're also pushing the envelope on multiple fronts. I'm working on designing and creating a, um, lab, um, that I'm calling in a haptics for inclusion lab or an institute for the body that, um, that centers the body and the idea that with immersive content, you can feel a story. You can, you know, uh, experience stories in a way that um, the whole body uh, is engaged. Uh, you don't always have to use eyes and ears. How do we start thinking about being more inclusive in the way that stories can be experienced? Um, we're also uh, have an incredible event space. So I'm able to start hosting things like um, this conference on, you know, uh, digital rights, authentication in the metaverse, right? Um, cool things like that. I'm also working in partnership with the Los Angeles Music Center. And we did an amazing workshop and that partnership's only going to grow. And, and finally, we're working on some policy. I'm really interested uh, in the idea that right now we've got education boards or water boards or power boards, whatever. We need technology boards because it's clear now that technology has become a basic right. And I really hope that um, at my uh, center, we're going to help work on that kind of policy. Absolutely. That is really commendable work that you're doing. And I love to hear how um, serious the university is taking it. That sounds like a program I would love to be involved in. So we'll have to um, share some links to that. Well, and the last one, one note on Arizona State University is we have the largest uh, number of first generation students. We have the largest number of indigenous population from all over the United States. Um, my new program, our first graduate degree, is extremely diverse cohort. I'm really committed to uh, changing the demographic 
and uh, you know, we know it's pretty monocultural still in technology. And the only way that I could actually bring about change, I realized, you know, as head of emblematic group, I'd have one intern here, one intern there. But now is um, now I'm I'm really thrilled that um, I'm getting opportunity to to really scale the shift um, uh, by having this program to teach and um, research and engage. Yes, that is great to hear. We definitely need more diversity and inclusivity in this industry. And honestly, I feel moving forward into this metaverse space, we need more female voices as well to be heard. And as it's International Women's Day and History Month, wonder if you might be able to speak a little bit about your experience as a woman in this industry and if you have any advice for other women. Mm. So you heard that mm, of pain because uh, uh, I can't tell you how often, um, you know, I've been the only woman in a room, in a group, in the engineering group. And it just amazes me how people don't take me seriously sometimes and I have to get really, you know, uh, difficult. But I say this about my own personal experience um, uh, is that, you know, you can feel your pain, but you got to make that you know, have a short memory for the pain and have a stubborn streak a mile wide. Um, and we're still there. We still haven't really shifted this demographic enough. So in the meantime, y'all stay stubborn and try to just, you know, feel that pain. I'm not denying it, but try to like go, okay, I'm putting that behind me now and I'm going to go forward. Um, so um, let's be stubborn together. Yeah. A lot of great uh, uh, orgs working together now for women to to try to support each other and um, that's the last thing I can say, you know, support as many women as you can. It's the only way we're going to change things. I absolutely agree with that. Resilience is key. And also being a leader, putting your money where your mouth is, you know, supporting other women, being a mentor, all those kind of things I think is so important. And I, I feel like we are starting to see some change. You know, we are demanding to be seen and heard and taken seriously. And, uh, and I, I, I've been in this industry 10 years and I've definitely seen it shifting in the right direction. We still have a ways to go, obviously, but um, yeah. So thank you for that. <laughs> so 10 years from now, besides having more representation of minority groups and women inside this industry, what do you think is going to be the most significant changes that we see when it comes to XR and anything that we should be considering in preparation for these changes over the next 10 years today? So I'm currently wearing my Bose bone conduction audio Bluetooth glasses, right? That I love, you know, they, they connect to my phone and I can uh, talk make my calls and talking to you through them. That's the mic we're using through my glasses. I hope that Bose will push these more, but, um, and then they're my, you know, they're my everything glasses, right? I can, I can ride my bike and I can see and they turn into sunglasses. They're my everything. And I think in 10 years from now, this kind of experience is going to be normal. You're going to just pop on your sunglasses like you would or your glasses and they are going to be your device. Um, I don't think you're going to need a phone. You're going to have edge computing that's going to stream the data to your, to your, to your glasses. Um, so you're just not going to have to um, think about that bulky headset, right? And it'll be normal. Your 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 even your car window screens are going to be likely to have AR embedded in them, so they can give you directions on your window screen, so you can, you know, um, uh, move forward without um, 
you know, having to try to look down at a phone or a map or whatever, right? It's going to be embedded everywhere we go. Um, and um, I think that's, uh, you know, not just glasses. You're going to have the holograms in your living room. So what do we got to think about? Like, this is happening. This kind of way that people are predicting on immersive content is happening. Um, so there are two things. One, um, what's the content going to be like? You know, what kind of stories are we going to be telling 10 years from now? Um, what are some of the things that we've looked at in the past that we think um, are kind of cringeworthy? And how can we make sure that the stories we tell in the future uh, are more inclusive and um, uh, have less bias in them? Um, so this is the really crucial part of this is, you know, how are we going to get the bias out of AI, which is going to really dominate things? Like, you know, there's that question. Um, uh, a man and his son get into a car accident, brought to the uh, hospital, and the surgeon says, I can't operate on uh, this boy. This boy is my son. So how can that be? Uh, you can let your audience ponder that one, but I know what everybody's thinking. How could that be, right? Stepfather? Uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's because the mother is a surgeon. So that kind of bias is so deeply embedded across everything that AI is being trained and learn, learning on. Um, and so that's the 10-year problem. Can we spend the next 10 years really trying to get uh, what that content is going to look like? Because we're going to be, you know, we're going to be cyborgs. Natural Born Cyborgs uh, is a great book to read by Andy Clark. Um, and that's going to be coming. And, and the question will be then, how does that data, um, uh, how, how are these stories going to be told? How is that data going to be more fair and inclusive? Yeah. Well, and that kind of leads me to my next to last question, which is looking at the bigger picture for a minute, what is your biggest fear for the future of this technology? And then what is your biggest hope? Well, my biggest fear is this, that <clears throat> we still aren't seeing the investment dollars in women. So that means that 10 years from now, we're, the cycle is going to continue. That because we aren't actually supporting uh, women and uh, their innovations and their work and their thinking, um, it takes a long time for things to actually grow and become. And um, without uh, us spending the money now, I don't see how the cycle is going to get broken um, and how things are going to change. My greatest fear is that we're going to be stuck with the same system that we have now um, uh, right. And, um, uh, and my greatest hope is that, uh, we women can change that, that, uh, our inclusive, uh, uh, approaches, uh, across, um, all kinds of different cohorts of, of cultures and ethnicities and, um, you know, um, preferences, um, that we can have a more inclusive future. Um, and um, that because of that, um, we are a group that understand how hard a challenge could be, and we've overcome them, can overcome them, and that means maybe we can bring all of that to bear when we deal with really big intractable issues like climate change. So that's my hope, that the, the difficulties that we're encountering now, we're going to be able to take um, and let them inspire us and give us hope for making big changes that need to be done. I love that. That is great. And I absolutely agree. And I share in that hope myself. 
Um, yes. And um, the end of March, to mark the end of Women's History Month, I'm actually going to be sponsoring a forum online, a remote event, uh, where we're talking about how women in female-led design and thinking can help um, map the future metaverse and stuff. So I'll definitely be inviting you to come to that. And um, and anybody else who's listening, it's going to be open. Yeah, it's we got to get these conversations happening. And for me, I really want to link up the right women and put them in touch. So um, yeah, it'll be hopefully we can all continue to inspire each other. So thank you so much. And if listeners want to check out the try.reach.love or if they want to get in touch with you or follow you, what's the best way for them to do that? So uh, if they're interested in, um, I think the best thing to do right now is just reach me out at, uh, at the either of my uh, emails for uh, reach. You'll get me at Nani, N-O-N-N-Y, at reach.love. And if you're interested in our wonderful building center at Arizona State University, you get me at a Nani. A-N-O-N-N-Y at ASU.edu. You can find me sort of uh, these days on Twitter at Immersive Journo. Uh, and uh, otherwise, uh, please take a look at my company, Emblematic Group. So um, I'm really happy to be here and I look forward to um, any exchanges that anybody in the audience is uh, uh, interested in having. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time. Can't wait to see what you guys create. Yeah. 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 I'm really, I'm really excited to see what people create on, on reach. It's going to be really fun. I can't wait to try it. I am going to get in there and make something. So um, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for watching or listening wherever you are and stay tuned for next month. Yeah.